Over the past five years or so, the media here in Canada has made a big deal about the fact that it seems that fewer and fewer Canadians are attending church on any given Sunday. Now, there are signs that's turning around, and in fact, some studies show that church attendance is now in the upswing, but recent history has it in a downward trajectory. But during the same period of time, statistics show that Canadians seem to be becoming more spiritual. They pray more, they meditate, they do things that are considered to be spiritual, they just don't go to church as much. You ever wonder why that is? Well, if you have, then you're in luck here this morning because we have the top 10 excuses people use for why they don't go to church. You ready? Here we go. Number 10. I relate to jazz and rock more than Handel and Bach. Number 9. I'd rather sleep in my own bed than in a pew. Number 8. I already served time as a child. Number 7. Organ music makes me crave hot dogs. Number 6. I can only remember three commandments. Number five, I feel guilty enough already. Number four, when I want to be told what's wrong with me, I call my mother. Number three, last time I knelt, I had a hard time getting up again. Number two, I can't afford the admission fee. And the number one excuse for not going to church, people that happy just give me the creeps. Well, that was fun. But what would happen if we were to actually go out and ask people on the street why they don't go to church? Well, I suspect we'd get several different answers. Some of the classics would be, it's not relevant, doesn't matter, doesn't make a difference in my life. They only want my money. It's boring. I have other things to do on a Sunday morning. You'll get lots of different answers. But I want us to take a slightly different perspective here this morning. Instead of looking at the excuses, I'd like us to look at the mindset behind the excuses, because when it comes right down to it, all of the excuses people may give you spring from a view they already have about the church. So let's take a look at three ways you can view the church. There are other views too, but we're just going to look at three of them. Three ways to look at church. Number one, some see church as an obligation. There are people out there who see the church as an ought to, or a got to, you ought to go to church, you've got to go to church, it's an obligation. Now, it used to be a cultural obligation. People went to church because everybody went to church. Didn't necessarily mean that they believed in God or that they had any kind of a relationship with Him. They just went to church because that's what they were expected to do. In fact, you could ask anybody what their church was and they'd have an answer for you. I'm a Wesleyan, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Presbyterian, I'm Pentecostal. They may have had no idea what that actually meant, but that's what they were, and they knew it. They were obligated to know it. Here in PEI, the obligation was to know, I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Protestant. And that's where the line was drawn. Again, it may have had nothing to do with actual faith and living in relationship with Jesus. Church was just an obligation. And people were obligated to know what their church was. And to me, that's pretty stupid. In fact, today here on PEI, I find that people are still obligated to know what their church is. The difference now is that they may never actually attend. It may have been years since the last time they set foot inside a church. But if you ask them, they know what their church is. They're obligated to know it. It's a cultural obligation. And then there are some who see church as a family obligation. 
There are lots of people who have no interest in attending church at all until they have a family. But then they have kids, and they think that the church is a good place for the kids to be raised and to learn values. And so they're obligated to bring the kids to church. And some are obligated to go to church just to keep everybody happy. A parent or a spouse wants, wants you to go to church, so you go to church. In fact, if you don't go to church, perhaps you don't qualify for Sunday dinner. So there's a no-brainer for you. You're obligated to go to church if you want to eat. Now, I'm not much of a fan of church as an obligation. I don't think that's the most positive or the most accurate way to look at the church. But I suppose there are worse things. I mean, people may attend out of obligation, but at least they're in a place where they can be exposed to the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. They may go to church out of obligation, but once they're there, they can encounter the life-transforming power of God. And they may discover real faith and real hope and real purpose in life. That's one of the possible outcomes. But I think a more likely outcome is that obligation will lead to resistance and, re- and resentment. Because people don't like doing things because they ought to do it or they've got to do it. And so if people attend church out of obligation, one of two things are likely going to happen. One, they're going to continue to comply and attend church. But as soon as they step inside the doors, they're going to shut off. They're going to disconnect themselves from what's happening around them. They're going to build up a wall inside and resist any of the benefits that may come from this obligation. Or two, they're just going to put their foot down and refuse to go anymore. They've done the church thing, they've gone out of obligation, and they've done enough. Psychotherapist Wayne Dyer made the comment that relationships based on obligation lack dignity. If you're living out of a sense of obligation, he says, you are a slave. Now that doesn't sound like much fun, does it? It's certainly not the best way to view the church, but that's how some people do see the church, as an obligation. The second way that some people see the church is this. Others see church as an event. Some people see church as an obligation. Others see church as an event. Kind of like going to the movies or going to the circus. It's an event, not an everyday happening or even an every week happening. You might only go for special occasions like baby dedications or baptisms or weddings or funerals. Like the guy who told a preacher, Preacher, the first time I went to church, they sprinkled water on me. The second time I went, they threw rice at me. The preacher thought for a moment, then replied, Yeah, I suppose the next time you come, we'll throw dirt on you. But believe it or not, there are people who have never been to a church except for these kinds of events, for weddings, for funerals. Church just isn't part of their lives. It's only an event. It's actually a little bizarre. There are people who never, ever attend church. But when they get married, where, they, where do they want it to happen? In a church. And when they have their first child, what do they want to have done? They want their child baptized or dedicated in a church. Or what about when somebody dies? Well, somebody goes looking for a preacher to handle the funeral. What's up with that? I think people are just a little superstitious. They think that maybe they'll have a better marriage or a healthier child or preferred reservations at the pearly gates if they include the church in those kinds of events. Basically, they see the church like a lucky rabbit's foot, which 
obviously wasn't that lucky for the rabbit. And then you have some people who are C and ears, those who only go to church on Christmas and Easter, the C and ears. After all, that's the thing to do, isn't it? Easter's coming up here in just a couple of weeks. And over the, these two weeks, I guarantee you there are going to be lots of people dusting off their suits. And Christmas, Christmas just wouldn't be Christmas without going to a Christmas Eve service, would it? I mean, check out the newspaper just before Christmas when they list all of the Christmas Eve services. It's amazing how many extra services some churches have to have to accommodate the influx of people on that night. And then still others who attend church on a regular basis, perhaps, they still see church as an event. They may go every week, but it's still just an event for them, like Hockey Night in Canada. For some people, every Saturday night, when Hockey Night in Canada comes on the TV, that's an event for them. You know, everything has to be just right. They put on their lucky shirt. They cook up some wings. They pour a big foamy glass of their favorite non-alcoholic beverage. And they settle in their favorite chair for an evening of yelling at the TV. That's an event for them. It's something they do every week, but it's an event. For some people, churches like that, it's an event. Maybe that's what it was like for Calvin Coolidge. When he was president of the U.S., there's a story that says he attended church alone one Sunday while his wife was sick. And when he got home from the service, his wife quizzed him about the service and asked, so what did the pastor preach on? When the president thought for a moment, replied, sin. And what did he say about sin, probed his wife. The president thought again and replied, he was against it. Now, I wonder if he was really paying attention or if he went just for the event of being at church. But if he did, it wasn't a new thing. Going back a long ways, people have treated church as an event. 400 years ago, Thomas Fuller made this comment. He said, many come, talking about to church, many come to bring their clothes to church rather than themselves. He's saying that it's an event for them to dress up and make an appearance and show off. Many come to bring their clothes to church rather than, than themselves. It's an event that they go to. So some people see church as an obligation. Others see it as an event. But either way, if people see the church as an obligation or as an event, then I would say that those people are not the ones to blame. Their perspective on the church is not their fault. So who is to blame? I would say the church is. Because for way too long, the church has marketed itself that way. Think about it. Some churches have tried guilting people into attending. You know, we've said, if you don't attend church, you're going to hell. But the truth is, simply attending church has absolutely no impact on your eternity. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you a car. Or going to a hockey game makes you Bobby Orr. Sorry, it doesn't. So guilting people into attending doesn't really do any good. Making it an obligation doesn't really do any good. And so other churches don't bother with the guilt routine. Instead, they simply rely on the fact that people have always come to church. It's a thing to do on a Sunday. And so they offer the church as an event. But that just doesn't cut it either. Church isn't the only show in town anymore. 
It's not the only event on Sunday mornings. There are lots of things that you could be doing at this very moment. You could be at the flea market. You could have the kids at a hockey game. You could be swimming. You could be golfing. As of May, when we begin Sunday shopping here in PEI, you could be shopping on Sunday mornings. The church used to have a corner on the market on Sunday mornings, but not anymore. So what's the answer? What new and wonderful thing do we need to become in order to attract a new generation of believers to church today? Well, actually, we don't have to become anything new. Instead, we need to become something old. Instead of looking at the church as a religious thing that people are expected to participate in, we need to see it as a relationship thing, where people are loved and accepted, where we can thrive in a relationship with God and a relationship with others. And I say that's an old thing because that's the way the Bible sees church. The Bible never saw church as an obligation, nor did it see the church as an event. As a matter of fact, for the first 300 years that the church existed, it was a socially and religiously unacceptable thing to do. People were obligated not to be part of the church. And the events that people attended in that day were often events where they watched Christians die. That was considered sport in those days. So when the New Testament looked at the church, it wasn't about obligations or events. Instead, time and time again, it came back to seeing the church as what? As a family. So that's number three. The Bible sees church as a family. Some people see church as an obligation. Others see it as an event. The Bible sees church as a family. That's what Jesus designed the church to be. Going all the way back to the first days of the church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says they were like family to each other. What a powerful statement that is. They were like family. A couple of other verses. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. It says, Be devoted to each other. How? Like a loving family. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Love your spiritual family. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not particularly close to your biological family. Or maybe your family has even been a source of pain for you. So perhaps that distorts your image of what family is. Perhaps the concept of the church as being a family doesn't sound all that appealing to you because of your past experiences. But you need to understand this. When the Bible describes the church as a family, it's not talking about a dysfunctional family. It's talking about a healthy family. It's not talking about a disconnected association. It's talking about a bonded relationship. It's not talking about some arbitrary bloodline. It's talking about a spiritual bloodline bonded by a shared Christian heritage, a shared mission in the world, a shared focus of our worship, and a shared hope for the future. We are a family. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, it says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. It goes on and says, this is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Now, doesn't that sound like something you want to be a part of? Doesn't the whole idea of belonging to a family like this do something for you? Jane Howard said, call it a clan, call it a network, call it a tribe, call it a family. Whatever you call it, whoever you are, 
You need one. So how do we move from obligation or event church to family? Well, I think the answer goes back to a comment that Jesus made to his disciples in the Gospel of John. Jesus was telling his disciples how others would know that they were Christ's followers. Now, he didn't say that it would happen because of what they called themselves, or where they attended church, or how they voted, or how they wore their hair, or what type of music they listened to, or because they wore a little cross around their neck, or because it said so on their t-shirt. Instead, Jesus said this is how people would know that they were part of his family. He said, your love for one another will prove to the world you are my disciples. That's what he said, John 13, verse 35. And you know, I got to tell you, the very best people I know are in the church. The most loving people, the most giving, the most compassionate, the most humble, the most serving, the the most joyful, the most focused, the most thankful, the most thoughtful, the most wise, the most honorable people, the best people I know are in the church. In fact, some of them are in this room this morning. Oh, some people would argue that the church is also where you find the most judgmental and the most hypocritical people. And that's true. Some of that is in the church. But that doesn't change the fact that the very best people I know are also in the church. Plus, we all know that those who are judgmental and bitter and hurtful are the very people who are themselves hurting. And they need to be in the church because they need to experience the love and the forgiveness and the healing that the very best people have to offer. Tony Campolo said, Isn't it wonderful that there's a place you can go where they welcome you? Not because of what you are, but in most instances, in spite of what you are. Jesus said that our love for one another will prove to the world that we are his followers. So what does this kind of love look like? Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote to the believers in the city of Corinth, telling them how they were to behave toward one another in the church. Over the past couple of weeks here at Sunrise, we've been talking about spiritual gifts and how we're to serve each other using those gifts. God has given each one of us different gifts and has put us together uniquely to make a unique contribution to his family. And we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it gave some examples of how we're to use our gifts within the church. And then Paul talked more about spiritual gifts in chapter 14. But sandwiched in the middle, in chapter 13, there's a passage that's very familiar to most of you because it's often read at weddings. But in reality, it wasn't written about marriage relationships, although it wouldn't hurt to treat your spouse in the way described in that chapter either. No, it wasn't written for marriage. It was written to tell believers how they're supposed to love one another within the church. It was written to provide a framework for how we use our gifts in serving each other within our spiritual family. Listen to what Paul wrote. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. 
If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Okay, so Paul talks about these different spiritual gifts, saying if he had those gifts but didn't operate using love, then no matter what he did, it'd be useless. All those gifts we've talked about for the past couple of weeks, you could use them all you want, but no matter what you did, if it didn't spring from a heart of love, it would be meaningless. So what is love? What does love look like? Well, Paul went on in the next verses to describe love. He said, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. And that's the kind of love the church is supposed to have. We are to be a loving family. Take another look at those verses. Are you patient? Are you kind? Or do you get jealous or boastful or proud or rude? Are you domineering, demanding your own way? Do you have a short fuse? Do you hold grudges? Do you believe in people? Do you look for the best in people? Do you encourage people? What examples of love can be seen in your life? Now, can you imagine a church like that that operates according to that definition of love? I can. I can imagine a church like that because I see what God is doing here at Sunrise. He's making us into this kind of family. And more and more, I see him doing that in his church around the world, across denominations. You know, there's a, a verse in the Old Testament where David wrote this, Psalm 122, verse 1. He said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And if the house of the Lord then was anything like the family of God now, I can understand what David's saying because I look forward to spending every Sunday morning with you. I think that's the best view of the church. People see the church in all kinds of different ways. But I think the best view is to see it as a loving family.